This is an ABC podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. We learnt last week that the remarkable Jack Charles had died. Before he passed away, his family were able to send him off on country with a smoking ceremony. I loved talking with Jack Charles. When Jack came into the studio for this conversation, he was sharply dressed with a shock of wiry hair and a wicked grin. He was, everyone thought, a pocket-sized rock star. And Jack was quick to laugh, despite the many sadnesses of his life. Throughout his childhood, Jack had no idea who his mother was. And when he went looking for her, he got arrested because it was illegal for him even to try. Uncle Jack is remembered today as a respected elder, actor, musician and mentor. And I recorded this conversation with him in 2019 on the release of his book, Born Again Blackfella. And just letting you know, this story does contain some confronting elements. Hello, Jack. Hey, Richard. Very good to be on your show here. Where were you born, Jack? I was born in the Royal Women's Hospital, Grattan Street, Carlton, in 1943, September. And um, Mum had managed to uh, to take me to Dash's Paddock between Melbourne and uh, Shepparton Rupna and uh, Dash's Paddock, a blackfella camp there, rubbish dump. So you were taken from your mother? From there at four months and then delivered to the City Mission Babies Home in Brunswick. And uh, when I got too big, at two years old, uh, a little note was attached to me and I was delivered to... Uh, Box Hill Boys Home. What was the... Right, well, I was taken under the assimilation policy, remember. So I didn't get that criminal record that most people got when they were taken in the 50s. Uh, When you were taken to Box Hill Boys Home, that was the Salvation Army place. What was the place like? Describe the building for me. Uh, There was one great big huge mansion at the front. It still stands, as a matter of fact. But uh, the rest of them were huts... There were two, three different homes and that, and the main buildings were solid edifices and uh, they had verandas and et cetera. But, uh, yeah, all built there and we were being raised uh, for future wars and that, soldiers of the cross. Did you like that kind of muscular Salvation Army Christianity back then when you were a kid? Well, you know, I was the only Aboriginal kid there and I liked the marching, I liked the songs, I liked the music. Uh, I was so whitewashed in the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ at one stage, Richard, I wanted to be the donkey carrying Jesus over the palm leaves. So that's how whitewashed I had become. You wanted to be the donkey on Palm carrying, Sunday? Carrying, carrying uh, Jesus. Wa- walking into Jerusalem. Why, you know. why not the disciple? That's interesting. No, I wanted to be the donkey because the, the woman running the Bible classes, wouldn't you like to be the donkey carrying Jesus over the palm leaves with everyone waving at Jesus? I said, yes, miss, I'd like to be the donkey carrying Jesus. I have fond memories of that. <laughs> How did you get on with the other boys being the only Aboriginal well, kid? Well, I got on well, really, you know, basically. Um, I've met fellows, you know, knocking on my door or in the course of doing, you know, touring Jack Charles versus the Crown, former comrades. I like to meet people in the foyer after the show and many of them remembered me from Box Hill Boys Home. Naturally, I couldn't remember any of them. But it was significant, truly, you know, uh, locked in the notion that I was the only registered Aboriginal kid there and those guys remembered me. You write about how you and the other boys were abused by a particularly vile sexual predator in that place. One of the staff. A few of them, yes, yes. A few of them. It wasn't just the one. Well, I I was approached in my last jail sentence by my former comrades. We're all collecting our methadone at Port Phillip Prison. And they said to me, do you remember us from Box Hill, boys' home? I couldn't remember them, of course. And I said, well, Jack, we remember you. We are part of a class action against the Box Hill boys' home and uh, Officer so-and-so and Major so-and-so and Captain so-and-so. So uh, we'd like your phone number uh, to give to the class action lawyers because I believe you're the best bloke, Jack, to give credence and validate the stories of what went on in the Box Hill boys' home. So sure enough, I gave them my phone number and shortly after I was booted out of the jail, Ryan Carlon and Thomas rang me 
and I gave them a story over the phone. Yes, this happened and that happened. And But really, basically, I was the first person that he approached. My bed was the first person he approached because it was right opposite his little cubbyhole uh, attached to the dormitory. So I was first up. And I remember it, you know, laying there like a, a mouse when a, when, a, when a snake is about to pounce and that and uh, being um, interfered with and that. And uh, it was brutal and uh, it was regular and it was something to be uh, tolerated and none of us ever spoke about it, I remember. After Bastardy came out, there was a... Uh, Richard, there was a uh, an edited version on on the ABC, and some fellas had written had had phoned up Ryan Carl on time. We just saw Jackie Charles on the television. We thought he was dead, but we'd like to tell you what happened to him. So I had some stories validated about some of the cruel and unusual punishments that I'd totally forgotten or put in the back of my mind, and some sexual escapade that I had to endure. So it wasn't until this time, years later, that. We guys got to talk about it. How do you, how does it feel talking about this now, after all this time, Jack? It got even worse once the the Catholic stories started to come out and were published, and that it uh, took me into great depressions and that, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I live with my depressions. I, I have to live with it. I've got a guitar close by in my unit, and I just sort sort of sing myself out of them. It never goes away. Does talking about it help? Uh, talking about it is it, just fantastic. Uh, that actually, um, I got uh, from from the from the salvos, uh, and uh, I got a uh, hundred grand because it was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that this happened because so many people gave uh, evidence uh, about me. So I was given a hundred grand for uh, what went on in Box Hill Boys Home. You're a bookish kid. Were there places where you could go in that home and be alone? Uh, yes, up a tree at the back of the school. And, and when you were up that tree? Well, when, when, when talking with the Maggies and yeah. uh, they never pounced on me or died on me. I used to do it regularly, you know, up a tree at the weekends, away from the maddening mobs. You said uh, it was in this home that you learnt the art of acting, Jack, how so? How well, uh, when you were naughty, you were forced to put on boxing gloves and be locked in the gym with a bigger kid. And I remember now the, being, you know, bashed by a couple of the kids. I was a naughty boy, apparently. You know, didn't turn up at the muster or something like that. It was late for dinner. So I was naughty and often I was punished. But there was one kid in the home who flatly twice to, uh, to bash me. And he said, Jack, uh, we're locked up in here alone, OK? I'm not going to hit you. You know, but you're going to have to make out I've been hitting you. We'll make some sounds, OK? So, and just be- before I yell out, yell out to open the door, I'm going to slap you because I know it's going to make you cry, Jack, OK? So so I was doing, you know, he was thumping his what? fist into the, the, into the leather and uh, whack, whack, oh, oh, ah, oh, you know. <laughs> and uh, and then, I, then he'd slap me in the face and... I would tear up and come out crying, sniffling. Right. That'd be, that'd be enough. That'd be enough. That'd they be believed enough. you. He said. So that was my acting. But no, you have to, you know, um, uh, act a lot, you know. Uh, we kids are resilient. And um, there were some times, uh, yeah, I had to act uh, against the, the bigger bullyish kids uh, with the Salvation Army officers. That was all an act. With the ladies, I put on a good act because I endeared myself to them and that I was allowed into the kitchen even well, uh, uh, Mrs Johnson was stirring the porridge and we had a wonderful time because I witnessed her teeth falling into the porridge one time and she had to scoot <laughs> them out and, and put, wash them and put them... And we had a good old laugh and we had, keep this quiet, Jackie. <laughs> it's like you, you, you do have a very beguiling voice. Have you always been charming? Do you think... And has that stood you in good stead, Jackie? Um, uh, yes, yes. Well, there was a teacher in the home who took me aside... And he gave me personally, after hours, non-sexual, nothing like that, felt really comfortable with him, and he taught me elocution lessons, gave oh. me elocution lessons. The <laughs> 
the rain in Spain, all that kind of shit. But rain know? in Spain, you were yeah. Eliza Doolittle, were yeah, you? Yeah, right. you know, right. Eliza Doolittle, right. little black Eliza Doolittle. And he died. <laughs> and I was really upset. And uh, I remember being bashed by the bigger boys for crying at this fellow's. But I was really taken with that fella. He really, you know, uh, and the head teacher, you know, just before I left the home, you know, going on to 14, I remember him hugging me close, closely and it wasn't one of those sexual hugs. It was a hug I, on reflection and looking at him. He must have thought I was going to leave a terrible life once I left the home. And mm. it so, so happened that it wasn't so terrible. Did you have any sense of your Aboriginality then, Jack? Uh, I knew I, all I knew was that I was Aboriginal. And what did that mean to you? Well, I was a black fella, one of the fellas that killed Captain Cook, the boys told me. <laughs> that was Hawaii. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I was told, and that's why I was sometimes, uh, you know, uh, jumped upon sometimes. Did you have a sense of you being a second-class citizen for being a, a, a black kid back then? Uh, no, no, I was a bit of a novelty. You're exotic then? I was an exotic right. species, you know, chosen specifically by the salvos to be in the right spot at the right time to showcase. I do remember uh, going to a big Salvation Army exhibition at the exhibition buildings and I was paired with this pretty girl my size. We were there to hand over some posies to those in braid on the dais. She curtsied, so I curtsied. Causes a stir and a rumbling amongst the Salvationists, <laughs> but me, I enjoyed the attention, but I had been trained to sing a song. I was specially chosen to sing on the big stage of God, I like to say. And uh, shall I sing this last, the chorus? Please. One tribe be yarra yarra dwelling right here, mid thick bush and gum trees tall. With fees through boomerang and hurl their sharp spears, they knew every bird bush call. Often went walk about and camp far away, everybody free as air. Running in the forest trees, swimming in the yarra stream, life went on without no care. Cockabarra laugh with gladness, <laughs> kangaroo jump for joy. Aborigine throw his boomerang, forest birds again, merry tune sang. There amid the bright yellow blossom, bright and wild the red gum flamed. Everybody lived in gladness, all because the white man came. <laughs> <laughs> you can see how whitewashed wa I was. I wasn't ready for that punchline at the end. <laughs> I wasn't ready well, for I that, Well, I was Jack. a kid, an orphan right. him. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for, for making the I have white to man put for that the world so in, lovely. Mate, because it's a part of who I am. Great of memories of, of being the chosen one to sing, especially mm. in the Salvation Army. So you left Box Hill Boys Home yeah, at the yeah. age of fourteen, and you were taken into a foster home. Uh, it was run by a widow, Mrs. Murphy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was she? Tell me about her, please. She worked up in the cottage factory. She was the mother of a woman that had taken me out often, uh, Norman Nichols. And Kevin Nichols, her husband, uh, they come in and pick me up in their Austin A7. Uh, I'd endeared myself to her. She had sons, two she sons. She had two bodgy sons. Bodgies, yeah, yes, like bodgies. Right. and they were apprentice uh, mechanics. And were they, were, they, were they nice to you? They were lovely to me. You know, they dinked me around on their bikes. Would you, were you considering becoming a bodger yourself, Jack, at that well, point? Well, yes, I wanted to sew pipe pants, but Mrs Murphy wouldn't allow me. You know, see, Fletcher Jones I got instead. I know. I've seen pictures of you at that time, and you really are like a very, very presentable young man. Oh, well, very days. presentable, mate. Oh, yes, he looked after me. So i I'd seen some of the letters that she'd written to the uh, Aboriginal Welfare Board to uh, get more funding for clothing and et cetera. How did you like family life for the first time? Oh, well, it was a great experience, but uh, at every turn, you know, uh, she did uh, knock me back from my queries about my mum. I had experienced in the home before I left some experiences that led me to believe that I did have family. I wasn't an orphan as she and the welfare board insisted that I was. Did you have an inkling that you might be gay at that point? Uh, yes. 
Yes, even at that age. And being being a member of the of the church as it was back then, did that frighten you or not bother you at all? Uh, not bother me, but uh, I never liked playing footy for uh, Blackburn United and that, you know, because uh, it was too tempting. And I was a loner. I kept to myself, and even though I had a group outside uh, the 10 Tyrrell Avenue mob. So you got a job at a glass factory. Glass beveling factory. And and the boss there. Lovely bloke. Introduced you to all sorts of interesting people. Yeah, 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 yeah. He'd always bring around his mates to meet the little Aboriginal boy working in the back there. And um, one time he brought around this bloke. He said, Jack, uh, uh, I want you to meet another mate of mine, uh, uh, Don Bradman, meet Jack Charles. So at 15, I shot the hands of Donald Bradman. Unbelievable. And the boys at work, you know, they said, uh, you know who that was, Jack? No, no, I didn't know who that was. I'm not a sporty type, really, you know. And mm. I, since then, I said, wow, I shook the hand of a real legend here. And the irony is... My second gig with the ABC was with a series called Behind the Legend and I had to play Eddie Gilbert, the hot shot fast bowler from Sherberg, who bowls Donald Bradman out twice for a duck. <laughs> <laughs> so it came around full circle then? It came out full circle, mate. So, so you said you were asking Mrs Murphy, your foster mother, um, who you called Mum. Yeah, I uh, You yeah. asked her repeatedly about how you th- suspected you might have some brothers and sisters. What made you think that you might have Well, I, I told them about the young fella that came into Box Hill a month before I left, and his last name was Charles, Arthur Charles. And what did you say when you met him? And I said, I, I've met him, you know, a fella that uh, might be my brother. You know, I knew that Mrs Murphy wasn't a religious woman, so I used to sneak out my bed when window to go to the Methodist service in the Blackburn village. You used to sneak out to go to church? Yes. On wow. Sunday, on a Sunday night. I don't know if that's very naughty or very unnaughty. Well, it's very naughty. Is very it naughty right? Because I, she came in one time into right. the church, bold as brass, dragged me out by my ear. I was very upset with the rest of the church people. How dare you take my boy out? You know, how dare you have my boy? He's got to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> Get so, out of that church. <laughs> right. So, right. But I kept on mm. going back to that church mob. We had a little group there, you know, a social group, and at one time, we traipsed on up to the Nuttlebotting Girls' Home to put on a concert for all those little girls there. And amongst those two little girls, amongst all those girls were these two little waif-like Aboriginal children and, of course, I just had to go up and ask them their names. The elder of the two shyly responds, I'm Esme and this, my sister Eva Jones. Well, what are your last names, I inquired. Charles, she says. Charles? Well, I'm a Charles too, ladies. Wouldn't it be funny if we were brothers and sisters? And we were. The system in Box Hill and at Winlayton just was not allowed to tell us that we were indeed brothers and sisters. So what was it that made you interested in finding out who you might be related to? What got you to actually take some action in that regard, Jack? Well, also uh, in the 50s, sometime mid-50s, an uncle and auntie of mine came into the Box Hill Boys' home to take me out for a picnic. Henry and Amy Charles. They came in this big flash Chevrolet and took me over to Surrey Park across the home. And uh, it was wonderful. And uh, they said, I'm your uncle and uh, this is your auntie. And uh, so they didn't come back the next Sunday, although I'd gone to my locker and put on my Sunday best the next Sunday for another visitation, but it never happened. So you knew you had relatives somewhere? I knew I had relatives because they said, you know... So where did you go looking for family once you wanted to start trying to find out um, who your family was? Well, the the first time going in at, uh, you know, uh, 16, uh, just before 17, nearly finishing off my apprentice, uh, was um, that the behest of the boys that worked, they said, a lot of you black fellas over in Fitzroy, Jack, you know, bet you've got family amongst them, you go see for yourself. So I went to Fitzroy, took the bullet, went on a Thursday night with a full pay packet that I normally had to take home to Mrs Murphy unopened. And what happened when you got off the tram at the corner and of no Napier and No I had, I jumped off the tram on the corner of Napier and Gertrude Street when this old black fella pulls me up. Charles, you Blanchy Charles's boy. And, of course, I shat myself. This old fella, he grabs me and hugs me and kisses me. He's recognised me. We can recognise people us Indigenous people, even though we don't know who we are. Uh, those, you know, many of the Charleses then 
were small people. I was small. I looked like my mum and, and uh, I looked like my sisters apparently too. How long had you been standing on the street before someone came up and said, you, you're Blanchy Charles' As soon son. as I jumped off that tram, he was walking past. So this old fellow, he grabbed me and he, you know, as I said, after this hugging and kissing business, he, he, he force-marched me up to the builder's arms. And, of course, I never entered another, another world when I walk into that building. Every Had you been place, in a, he hadn't been in a pub before? I'd never been in a right. pub before. I'm Jack Charles. Right. Jesus Christ. You know, I, I couldn't, you know, I'm not a drinker. So I, I walked in and every face in the place seemed to be black. And he's saying, there's a Blanchy Charles's boy here. So people are coming up to me saying that they're my uncle, auntie, you know, uh, cousins and that. And then, uh, you know, so I'm truly overwhelmed with their beery hugs and kisses and that. And then old, one old lady croaked, your mum's living up in Swan Hill, young fella. You should go and see her. So I, I will, I tell her, first chance I get. What did that do to you to discover your mum was living up near Swan Hill in Victoria? Well, it had opened a wider world for me. I had great intentions of going back to mum telling her. Even then, I thought, Christmas holiday's coming up soon. I'll go up then. And and aside from all that, what was it like being in a room full of Aboriginal men and women? Pretty scary. Really? Oh, yes, 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 yes. You you didn't feel like these are my my people? Yes, yes, yeah, pretty scary, you know, but at the same time. Uh, I was very welcomed at the same time, you know. So when you get when you left the pub, what happened when you got back home just to meet Mrs. Murphy? Well, I jumped up on the doorstep and said, "Joy, oh joy, Mum! I just found Mum. I expected her to share my joy, but no such luck. She wrangled the story out of me. My night in a Fitzroy pub being recognised as a child's, but worse still, my pay packet ripped open and a third of it spent. This." riles her no end. She comes at me, those people will tell you anything. Yeah, when I say I'm raising my hand, am I going to hit her? I see the fright in her eyes. Get to bed, she hisses before backing off. No sooner had I put on my pyjamas and settled down for the night when she calls me to the front door. A police divvy wagon is parked in the drive and I'm driven over to Royal Park home for juvenile offenders. Richard, I was a ward of the state, a child of the crown and would have been until I'm 18. And that woman I've called mum had deemed me unruly, disobedient. So for the first time, I remember being locked alone in a cell, crying myself to sleep. How did that work? How could you be arrested and incarcerated? It was a jailing offence, so I got locked up for that. For what offence? What did you do? For going into Collingwood Fitzroy. Mixing up with other blackfellas and that, you know, finding my roots. Had uh, you, what act did you break? What, the Assimilation Act or something? Uh, probably the Assimilation Act, yes, yes. And, and I don't know, but I, it was a jailing offence for many of us who had endured for the, the, the homes and who failed our foster and adopted people uh, were locked up in jail. I saw the next day, the light of day, you know, it was the first of what becomes for me a series of incarcerations. When I get let out the next morning, there I see many of the other failed, Brian Orr and all these other fellas that had failed their foster and adopted people. Jack, your foster mother, Mrs Murphy, she'd been, I suppose, kind to you? and She was kind, yes. But she called the police to take you away? Yeah, well, I did so, raise my hand. What, this was, this was... And I was so pissed off with her for not believing me when I said these were, were that I Why had Why did she mum. do that? She was, was a spite. Was it because I found my real mum? Is that what yeah. it is? Um, uh, uh, yes, yes, and uh, finally realising it was the end of a good thing. Uh, her her favourite little Aboriginal boy, oh. son, was uh, moving away from her out of, out of her control and that and uh, was uh, fending for himself. Yeah, you know, Jack, I think, I think you know, all of us parents have that with our kids, but we don't call the cops. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's... Did you feel betrayed? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I felt very slight, very, really upset. And, um, and it took me some back- time to go back to collect my state bank book. So she didn't want you in the house anymore after She didn't that. want me anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, ironically, my boss rang her up and said, where's my favourite little Aboriginal worker? Oh, he's locked up in, you know, so and so, you know. So uh, he came and bailed me out. Your boss bailed you out? Bailed me out and put me in a gentleman's residence in Glenferry. 
and uh, not, you know, within walking space of Auburn where I worked and um, being independent, you know, still a, uh, a year off becoming 18 that uh, I started to uh, fend for myself, started to think for myself, have nobody really ordering me about. Uh, I never saw any sign of any welfare board member after that. I had failed the welfare system and they didn't want to have a bar to do it with me anymore. So I had the notion I would write to the Swan Hill Police and find out if they know him of my mum. And, of course, I got a letter from the sergeant said, Yes, Jack, I know your mum. She's living here between on the Edwards River, uh, between Moolamine and Swan Hill. And I said, Well, I intend to come up the next Christmas holiday, three weeks I've got from work. And uh, I told my boss, I said, well, I'll book you a flight up there, Jack. And uh, he paid for the flight, Alf Clark, you know. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. How then were you introduced to a life of crime from Ah, there's the rub, you see. Being delivered into Glen Ferry led me to where all these young criminals set on a life of crime already by the time I arrived there. So I was in a gentleman's residence nearby and we used to meet up at uh, Zigfield's dance. Many of us would go there. I was always on the side of looking at the gentlemen's really, you know, but I do remember one fellow saying to me, Jack, uh, you want to do a berg with me? What's a berg? What, what, what do you mean, what's a berg? He says, well, break into a shop and that, you know, burglary. Impressionable me. I must have fancied him. His name was John English. He was a beautiful kid and I wanted to do his bidding. A pretty boy. And he got to say if I got the cigarettes. But he'd thrown the lolly machine directly through the front window and he landed straight into the arms of the Jacks. <laughs> they were there waiting for him. And by the time I got to my uh, gentleman's residence, the Jacks and him were sitting on my bed waiting for me. <laughs> so you were done for breaking and entering? Breaking and entering. Right. Jailed immediately. Jailed immediately. So that's yes, your yes, second yes. time you'd been incarcerated. Yes, yes, yeah, but in Pentridge this time. What did you make of Pentridge when you got Yeah, yeah, Pentridge, yes, yes. It was exciting to be in Pentridge, mate, you know. A lot of other Box Hill boys' home boys were there, Boywood and Bayswater boys' homes were there. <laughs> already gangsters, many of them, and that. So you knew people already? Oh, yes, I knew a lot of people there. I walked in with oxblood pointy-toed shoes, I was a sight. And I was, you know, the well-spoken little Aboriginal fella who, uh, if you give him some tailor-made or some chockey, he'll write your letters for you. So out of prison, you went back to work at the glass factory. Again, this boss seemed to be really quite lovely with you. And this was around about the time you decided you would try and make contact with your mum, who you heard was near Swan Hill. How did you do that, Jack? Well, I uh, took my leave. Uh, I said uh, to Alpha, look, I'm going up to Swan Hill. I'm meeting mum. I said, oh, that's right, Jack, okay. So here's some extra money, a bonus. We're giving you a bonus, Jack, and I'll pay for that flight. God, he was a very nice man, I am wasn't wonderful, he? mate. Right. And I couldn't have done it because of him, you know. I did it because of him, you know. He, he, he allowed that to happen. And so I flew up to Swan Hill and uh, landed there. That was wonderful, flying in a plane. <laughs> My first experience of that, you know. Uh, we landed at Swan Hill and there uh, was the sergeant from Swan Hill Police. So drove us into Swan Hill and took us around across the border to the Federal Hotel and uh, left us around the back of the hotel where I saw all these little huts of Blackfella camp. Looked like something out of a slave quarters in the deep south in America. Now he said, stay here, I'll arrange for a lift to take you to uh, your mum, Jack. And Jack, I suggest you buy a carton of Melbourne Bitter your mum likes to drink, Jack. <laughs> Those were his exact words. Oh, I will, I will. So I bought a carton of Melbourne Bitter, put it next to my property and my luggage, and it was a couple of hours before I was due to be picked up by this old couple. So I thought I'd go to the Swan Hill bars and have a swim first, you know. 
So I crossed over the board and walked up to the Swan Hill bars and that, and I'm standing there and get out my money and about to pay, and the woman says, oh, I'm not allowed to swim there. I says, no, no, I got the money, you got the money. And he said, no, no, we don't allow you to swim here. You've got to go to the, the Murray there. The and so I'm so nonplussed. This is my first experience of country racism and that. I'm so struck dead, you know. The big fella behind me with his kids picked me up and just set me aside and plopped me down, you know. Well, get out the way. Get out of the way, young fella. So what happened when this couple picked you up? Ah, uh, yes, they took us out too. We know where your mum lives. We know the property there, Jack. So we'll take you all the way. And so we go to their property where mum lives and that, and then we drove along this wonderful driveway and I see a beautiful white house in the distance. Oh, that looks nice, you know. She lives there, eh? And suddenly we veer off a track into gutted track, you know, and uh, there's this huppy and uh, 12 whippet dogs and two Ford prefects and there's my mum waddling towards me. And uh, it was my first sighting of my mum waddling towards me. How did your mum look to you when she was walking towards you? Well, looked a little like me, only larger, beautiful black hair. We hugged each other for a long time. It's good to see you, son. Remember, I'm the firstborn. I was the first one taken. And um, she welcomed the beer. I realised that um, she did like the drink. There was a bed set up for me outside under a canvas roof. It was hard to get anything out of her. I hadn't realised that she was there, basically, ostracised by the rest of New South Wales and Victoria. Why was she ostracised? Because of that murder in the 50s. What was that murder? That murder was the payback law for this man's behaviour towards the children and the women in the Black Valley camp up in Griffiths. She was the one that called the meeting. She was commonly called a sergeant. People still know her, my mum, as the sergeant. That was her nickname. That, that was her nickname, the and, sergeant. So she'd organised what some Aboriginal law? Payback law. Payback law. Against this man's behaviour towards the women and the children in the camp and other men's women's. And for that, she was ostracised? Oh, yes, 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 yes. So there she is on the outside, on the outer, of, on the outside of both societies there. On the outer. And when we did go in to pop up my bank account, you know, take your money out of out of my bank and that, she would have a lot of arguments with some of those women in the Blackfella camp and she would go off at me too. How many kids did she have taken from her, Jack? Well, 11. All 11. Two died at birth. Uh, so all 11 kids were taken. She never got to raise any of us. She got to raise um, Esme and Eva Joe and Artie until they were little ones and then they were taken. So each and every one of us were taken and the last one, Zenith, was taken shortly thereafter. Yes. Does that explain to your that mind? Does that explain her behaviour? Yes, it explains why her behaviour. Yeah, some... And uh, I think somehow or another my addiction might have set me apart, but I made an effort to be part of her life. Oh, did I, you think uh, you might be a bit you know, too high and job, mighty then, did you? Yeah, Clary and her job was to look after the five surrounding farmlets. And so I learned to drive a Ford Prefect utility. You know, Mum used to do it. Uh, but, you know, down to me, now I'm the man. And we'd uh, charge, we'd go into one of the properties around nearby to help keep the rabbit population down. And remember, there were five shillings a pelt in those days. And so I had to learn to break a rabbit's neck. So you spent some time there and lived the life. I lived the life. I didn't go back to work, as a matter of fact. And did you I like sent a the... telegram back to Boss saying, I'm not coming back. If I'm going along to Murray, I'm going to do some work and see if I can do some jackarooing and that. So uh, I did, did leave like Mum it? because the drinking really got to hold of me and I didn't like it that much. So uh, I uh, went along and I worked on a property at Finley. It was a real harsh life and I didn't like it. I was on my own, but I was willing to have a go at bush life. You know, if I'm an Aboriginal, I must, you know, get to understand what it's like working along the Murray and that like Mum did. And I liked the bag sewing with her. I liked catching the odd snake and the turtle, eating all that kind of stuff. It was a great experience. Were you able to bond with your mum or was she just too damaged in the end? She had been too damaged by the whole system and it was impossible for us really to bond. So that's why I did leave. And then after a year, I went back to Melbourne and I was discovered by the new theatre there. So this is where your life and acting begins, being discovered by the new theatre, which I think was a leftist oh, theatre. Yes, they were communists. 
Were the they? Pink, yeah, commonly called the Pink Theatre. Pink Theatre. Were you a Marxist-Leninist in those days, Jack, or was no, that not no, really no. your cup? So once you, once you had a taste of the spotlight as an actor on stage, uh, how, how much did you like it, Jack? All of it. All of it? Every right. bit of it? Yeah, yeah, even the makeup. They came in wanting to recruit to play African-Americans in Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun. And um, years later, I found out it was a Sydney Poitio movie. I did it. I raised my hand and I followed uh, Ronnie Northrop. So you loved it. You absolutely loved it. I loved it. Loved you know, it. I ate him playing Bobo and uh, I couldn't cry instantly. So I used to have a smoke in the back backstage and put the smoke under me eyes and I'd be tearing <laughs> up by the time I got on stage. <laughs> and we did a lot of political comical reviews yeah. and musicals and that. And uh, I thought that, well, this is where I need to be. This is just great. And that's where I first found Jack or Jack found me. You fell in love with a man also named Jack yes, at, yes, at the yes. time. Did that make you happy for a while? It did. Yes, yes, for five years. Five years. You say, nonetheless, it was doomed to fail in your book. Why do you, why do you think it was doomed to fail? I never had uh, anybody really love me and I never had any experience in loving anybody else. Did he say, I love but, you, to you? Well, he did straight away and I said, well, you better stay the night. So what led you to start taking drugs to the point of becoming addicted to them then, Jack? Well, I think it was well after, you know, Jack uh, had left. In Dimboola, all the actors were allowed to drink. And you sit there and you just drink beer throughout the yeah, whole performance. Yeah, and, uh, I was uh, partnered with Max Killies as the gate crasher. I, I think I was Martin or Bainet that had a touch of the tar in him and that, you know. But I was in jail when they moved, when they made the movie of it. <laughs> so this is when your career as a cat burglar really kicked in. Yeah, kicked in off and then, you know, but yeah, yeah. So between these gigs I was doing burgs and that, you know. So was this to but fund the But the other thing ha- with alcohol was that I was doing uh, also varsity and um, I was drinking heavily after each show, especially after the show in Dimboola, I was drinking a lot of head and I had a motorbike at the time. I don't know why I survived. Anyway, after Dimboola, after Varsity, a young fella said, uh, come and join me and partake of my father's reds. He lived just across the road next door to the, the, the police station in Drummond Street. And he said, my father's reds. I think his father was a doctor from Hawthorne Football Club. Beautiful wine. And I bumped into him. I was doing the Ligon Limbo as you could in those days and I bumped into him and I said hello to him and he, he was very upset with me and I couldn't understand why he was upset with me. But he realised I didn't know what the hell he was talking about so he sat me down. He said, Jack, do you remember that night after Barsity had finished, the last night, you know, we had a drink at my place? I said, yeah, I remember, yeah. Do you remember anything else, Jack? No, no, I can't. Well, Jack, look, we were getting along fine but we had an argument over something that we shouldn't have had an argument over. You went into my kitchen, Jack. You went into my cutlery drawer and you drew out a steak knife and you came into the land to come up real close to me, Jack, and you bent that knife right in front of my face and then you straightened it out and then you went out to my Morgan and you knifed all four tyres, Jack. You jumped on your bike and your stack hat's still on my veranda. Go and get it. And you had no memory of that? No memory. So instantly I gave up drinking for eight years after that because I I instantly thought it could have been him I might have stabbed. And that's when I said to one of the pram factory people who I knew was shooting up, he said, give me a shot of that. I forced it out of him. Why? Why did you do that? Well, I, you know... I you just, wanted something other than drink? Or is that what it yeah, was? Yeah, well, you know, I, drinking was hiding, you know, was uh, making life bearable for me as an Aboriginal, as a loner as a gay Aboriginal too and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, somebody that's um, not quite comfortable in my skin in those days. It's taken me many years of discovery to be comfortable with who I am. So what did taking heroin do then? What what was the feeling it gave you? Well, instant euphoria, you forget your pains, you can put, you know, your angst, your anxieties, your fears uh, aside, or leave them aside. They're always there still. And that, but you leave them aside and you're strengthened to uh, play the silly bugger and do the wrong things even so, ever more so. So to finance this habit, you eventually started doing cat burglaries again yes, throughout yes, the yes. sub, mainly through wealthy suburbs in Melbourne like Kew. Well, yes, yeah, over the other side of the Yarra, invariably. When you're doing that, is it a frightening thing? Are you frightened? Always a frightening thing. When you actually go up the drive, that's when the frighteners turn on. Right. You know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm there on a job to rob and steal money. Normally, I'd be happy if the cars were unlocked 
the three or four, two cars in the garage were unlocked and I was safe with getting something out of the car. Sometimes I'd get thousands out of a car, thousands, 56 grand out of one car and 36 again the next month out of the same car. This is really strange. Never reported to the Capwell Police. 56 grand? I owned up to these crimes and the police go back and say, was your car broken into and this amount of money stolen? And um, years and years later, and they said, no, no, so it's black money. Right, you're stealing, you're stealing from another crook in that case, almost stealing certainly. Stealing from another crook. How do you reflect on those break-ins now? I reflect differently now, but uh, at the time, you know, I was a stolen child. I was stolen, and uh, by stealth I'd entered this home, and uh, I had uh, taken money by stealth, and uh, I'd uh, been given some measure of payback. I worked it that way. As I say, justifications for many of our crimes were easily justified and simply, in the simplest of terms with an Indigenous people, well, I stole my country, stole my land, stole me from my mum, stole my life, and that's how I'm stealing back. These are the people over in Turak and, and Q and Kuyong that are making the rules that are suppressing my people. So I t- felt heartened every time I had a successful night. And I always... You know, in those days, discovering a family, I was sharing the wealth. In the fridges, in the in the garages of these large places, there's always special freezers and fridges and that for top-shelf meat and that, you know, silver side and that. And I'd laid my dearly bag with that also to take home to my newly found sisters. Still, you're kind of violating their sense of safety. Oh, you violate their safety in that. But then again, I reflect of the violations of my kin, my kinfolk in the past that have been violated, raped and murdered. I never raped and murdered anybody. So it was as simple as that. Tell me about the night you were busted in a bungalow in Kew. I had a torch in my mouth going through the front bedroom, you know, through the drawer next to the bed. And the house was empty at this? Uh, Yeah, the house was empty. And uh, this car turned in this roundabout drive and its headlights caught me like a moth, you know. And I heard the bloke yell out, hey, get your way, stop there, I got you, you know. He had apparently jumped out of the car and come flying through the front door and I'd only had time to duck into the cabin and that, you know. So he knew where I was, you know, instantly. And he, he, he grabbed himself a weapon and he said, come out of there, I know you're in there, I'm armed. And that's a... I came out and uh, he took one look at me and dropped the brolly. He was so shocked to see a little diminutive black fella there in his bedroom, you know. What are you doing here? I'm robbing you, mate. Sorry, mate. He said, what are you taking? Nothing. I just got started. Just going to the drawer there. Well, empty your pockets out, you know. She's finished parking the rover around the back by then. She's come through the kitchen. Have you got him, love? Have you got him? Yes, he's in the bedroom here. Call the police. No, I want to see him. No, call the police. I want to see him first. So she comes in. She takes one look at me and she says, you're Jack Charles. <laughs> She'd seen Varsity the play. She'd seen you on stage? She saw me on stage. She recognised you as an actor? Instantly. I tried to feel so small. How did it? Oh, my God. I, I was so embarrassed. So she, Jack, let's go into the kitchen, have a cup of tea, and we'll talk about this. And you were mortified. I was mortified. Right. And what did she say to you when she gave you a cup of tea? Well, he, he was the same like-minded too. He'd seen the play. Had a couple of pans in. So we had a cup of tea. And I said, well, Jack, we'll let you go. We won't talk to the police. We don't care what you do to the rest of the neighbourhood here. We don't know them. I hung around to see if they had. True to their word, they didn't. I always wanted them to come out to revisit, to, to check on me. Just, do you remember us? We were the ones that he, he robbed and, you know, we didn't allow you to have a chance to rob us because uh, we busted you and we let you go. That's never occurred to me. But I always wonder if these people would see Bastard either Docker, if they'd seen me doing Rake, Wolf Creek, Clever Man, all these uh, black comedy, Chanter Jimmy Blacksmith. You're living this really unusual life at this point. You're acting all the time in theatre productions with the Pram Factory and with the uh, Black Theatre Company you founded with Bob Mazur back in the day, doing these extraordinary things. At the same time, you're kind of a functioning heroin addict and doing cat burglaries to fund that as well and being homeless at times and then sleeping in nice hotels at other times. It's a really strange kind of disjointed lifestyle. Tell me the story of how during this period 
you came to be stark bollocks naked on the stage <laughs> of the Sydney Opera House, oh, please, Jack. <laughs> how, how did that? How did that come about? What a hoot! We were doing the Cradle of Hercules, written by Michael Body for the Old Tote Theatre Company, and they pulled me up from Melbourne and Gulpalil from Manning Reader, and seventeen Old Tote Theatre members, all of us ex New Theatre people, and six girls from Redfern. Now, I never knew them. I never, I'd never been to Redfern. And I wasn't certain of my footing, but I was amazed that somehow the Eora people would allow me to be playing the part of Benelong. Okay, so um, I find the girls coming up to my dressing room uh, shortly before we were due to perform, and they said, Jack, we've just been told that we're not going to be paid the performance money and that we have to remain on the rehearsal money. And I said, oh, that sounds unfair, girls, you know. So do you want me to speak up for you? Yeah, yeah, she said, please, Mr Charles, can you do that? I said, of course I will. We're ex-New Theatre people, Christ's sake, you know. So uh, so I go up to George Whaley and uh, and uh, Robin, whatever his name was, I said, listen, uh, you know, why are these girls not being paid the same as Gulpalil and I, you know? Oh, they're casual, Jack. I'm casual, even though you have me for two plays, and Gulpalil's casual, only one play. And uh, so I, I don't reckon it's right. You know, I was heavy drinking and getting into drugs too. And I said, well, listen, I, I can't really do the show because this is not my country. And so you have to pay those girls. Otherwise, I'll pack my dog on my bag and go back to Melbourne. I'm not allowed to be in the country if you're not paying these girls. And so they waited for the 11th hour and I'd already packed the dog in the bag. And I was so pissed off when George came up and said, well, I'm in Robin. We're going to pay them, Jack. Then I said, look, I'm going to play Been Along Naked, Buckyers. Jack, please, you know. Hey, please, can you reconsider? So the Opera House management and the, the old Tote Theatre management tried to dissuade me otherwise. So we're down there for the first what, run and all that, showing Gulpalil what I was going to do. And there was Gulpalil on the side of the stage all lappied up. And I said, Jack, aren't we going to do this naked? It's a strange conversation to be had on the side of the stage, Richard. He said, you're no man. I said, what? What do you mean I'm no man? Huh? And the stage manager, our naughty little fellow, said, look, Jack, I think I know what's happening on here, dear. Look, go and do your thing, and then when you come back, I'll tell you what I suspect is happening. I said, OK, so I get shaved and washed in a tin tub on stage, and I come off, you know, and he says, yeah, what? He said, well, I believe he's wearing that out of respect for you, Jack. What do you mean, out of respect for me? Well, it's plainly obvious, Jack, there, that you, uh, you're, you're, you're not, uh, uh, you've not been initiated. Oh. So <laughs> this was the kind of st- conversation we were having that's, backstage. That's a very strange conversation to be having. It is. It's <laughs> one of the best conversations I've ever had backstage with a stage manager. <laughs> so did you walk on naked in the end? Yes, yes, you yes. Did. I got a standing ovation on the opening night. <laughs> And, the, and that was the out lady, of, and, and that was lady. out of uh, that was out of revenge for them being so bloody minded about yeah. not paying those women properly. And I do remember the ladies <laughs> down at the MLC there when my legs were dangling <laughs> over the side of the stage, licking their lips, and that you know, cheeky little girls. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're only human, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yes, I made an impression in the theatre. <laughs> I became an instant rebel here oh. in Sydney. And I've always had <laughs> seeming problems because of that. Uh, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. If it was just wrong for them to have done that, I might have slighted golf a little by doing that, but no. We did the play and uh, it was done and dusted with. Eventually it took a long while for you to kick the habit of heroin. Well, yes, I yes, think yes, you were 60 or something when you kicked yes, it. Yes, yes, What persuaded you to kick it? The Maramali program delivered by Auntie Lorraine Peters and her daughter in my last jail sentence. But what made you want to kick it? What made you want to go to them? The, you just got no, sick no, of I it? didn't go to them. I did naturally. Uh, I'd, if anybody delivered a program in the jail, I'd naturally go to it if it was Aboriginal. And it tweaked with me. They gave us information about the potential of what is yet to be discovered about our heritage and why it has been denied us. And we were so pissed off with what we had been denied us. I personally felt that I had a need to uh, relit the burning embers of my grogged up, drugged up, mucked up dreamings. Totally. I had this notion of coming out to my community, Collingwood Fitzroy's Featherfoot Kadaicha Man Lawman. I needed to be seen as a leading black light in my own community. 
I was beginning to discover who I ought to be and what I ought to become. So you wanted to aspire to the dignity of that? Yes, yes, yes. And I came out. It took me two years to jump off the methadone, two years to finish off the doco, two years to learn going through the elder skills course run through Canberra, going through various destinations, seeing other men from all over the continent, women in another conference centre, but me getting to understand the, the roots of problems of elders and men trying to aspire to be elders in their own communities, all meeting on the one ground. And I realised I had this unique voice, this unique memory and this unique drive to become sincerely a truly an elder statesman person in my own right. Well, you are acknowledged as an elder statesman. You have been awarded as Victorian Senior Australian of the Year and you are called Uncle Jack. Now you are acknowledged as an elder. As such, you very much want to be one of those elders that goes into prisons and to be the kind of person you needed when Mm. you were young and in prison. Is that possible for you? What do you want them to know? That it's, 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 it's never impossible to reach my level. Come with me. You ought to be more than you are at the moment. And that's what I take into prisons, trying to impress uh, those that are struggling with their own lives, you know, looking for direction, looking for support, and that I could be that person. Allow me to uh, put you on a right road, give you guidance and directions. You say you know who you are these days, Jack. Yes, sir. Who are you? I'm Uncle Jack Charles, a totally born-again blackfella, now beyond reproach. The rigididge, not true blue, but true black. You know, I've regained that which has been denied me and I'm all the more powerful and empowered because I know that my roots are firmly stuck in Melbourne and all across New South Wales. Well, I believe you're a black fella. (laughs) I believe it. I do. And (laughs) I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think you're extraordinary. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you, mate. Enjoy the book, folks. Thank you. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. That was my conversation with Uncle Jack Charles from 2019. And Uncle Jack's book is called Born Again Blackfella. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.